Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, please free us from distraction. Please settle our hearts so that we might feast upon your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we have worship today? Why are you at worship today? Why are we here? Don't you know that this is incredibly boring, irrelevant, and according to our world, potentially harmful? I mean, some terrible things could be said here as we look to God's Word week in and week out. Some intolerant things, because this God of ours seems to have a pattern of his own design. So why are you here this morning? I remember my sin struggle as a young kid before I became a believer. I became a believer at 19. Well, the Lord actually made me a believer at 19. The battle I had in going to worship, because my parents brought me to worship, was boredom. I think the ability to daydream was developed in Roman Catholic churches in my youth. And I remember when I finally got that driver's license, I convinced my parents that I preferred a church service, not at Alhalla's, but St. Bridget's Roman Catholic Church in Pacific Beach. And I'd like to start going there. And so I would go to St. Bridget's. I would literally walk in the door. I, I would just I'd step in the door. And then I turn right around. So I can legally tell my parents I went to church. I then would go to Los De Pedro's Taco Shop. I would go get a carne asada burrito. I would go down to Tourmaline Beach. And I knew I couldn't get on the beach because then you'd get sand in your shoes. And your parents would know you were at the beach instead of being at church. And I just, if the weather was right, I'd, I'd find that nice bench. And I'd sit there and I'd eat my carne asada burrito. And I'd wait a little while and figure out when I could go home, freed of the boredom of it all. This passage, this passage that we talked about last week, is the advent of God in the Old Testament. It is consistently and throughout the Old Testament a part of the work of God in such a way that when when Israel goes astray, when Israel falls away in one sense, God will say, don't you remember that I came for you in this advent? Don't you remember I came for you? Don't you remember I am the God that came for you and personally brought you out of Egypt? God constantly reminds Israel about this advent, and I know that language probably some of you thought I was exaggerating last week when I said, if you were to meet a Jew, they would say, this is the advent. They wouldn't look, they wouldn't know the, the Christmas narrative. They would say, this is the advent of God. But again, this is actually the moment. We have reached the precipice of the moment where God is revealing himself to Moses. And both in, in Exodus, later on when see that God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, or the words to Moses as they're 
more properly called in the Hebrew, the giving of the law, he's going to remind them first of this coming. He also remind them of this coming in their worship in Numbers, also in the book of Deuteronomy, also in the book of Joshua, also in the book of Judges, also in First and Second Samuel, also in First and Second Kings, also in First and Second Chronicles, also in Nehemiah, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in Hosea, in Joel, in Amos, in Micah, in Haggai, and in Zechariah. And while that's not all the remaining books of the Old Testament, it's almost all of them. God cares about how we act before him when he reveals himself to us, when he has shown himself to us. And for the Old Testament faithful, their, their faith was very much one that God wanted them to look back at this Advent experience here in order to remember how to conduct themselves, how to live in the midst of his presence. Let me illustrate this another way. I knew of a, I knew of a pastor who was visiting Congress and who was ready to die, soon to die of cancer. And often pastors will go into such a meeting with a passage in mind in order to share, in order to talk about with the individual. And this was the verse he read. He read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It's found on page 1,203 of the Bible, if you want to follow along. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And at first glance, that passage seems like a terrible choice. What good does it do for someone lying in a hospital bed, soon awaiting death, who can't even get up out of bed in order to relieve themselves, to go, to go over the idea of not being conformed to the passions of former ignorance? At the end of life, there's little energy to do anything, especially the kinds of things that we outwardly kind of consider terrible and gross kinds of sin. But that's not actually what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16 is really about. And actually, in that verse, there's something of this visitation here with God and Moses. Let me read it again before I explain what it's really about. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, that passage is all about a promise. That passage is all about a promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of God will make us holy. That, that there we are it helps define the Christian life. The faithful life of a follower of God is a response of God coming for you in order to rescue you. And in His calling you by name, it leads to a lifetime of worship, of a desire to grow in holiness. 
of no longer finding the presence of God boring, but sanctifying and good for our lives. It's the glorious promise that one day we will be made holy just as Jesus Christ is holy. We were just talking downstairs about the emotions of Jesus Christ. One day, there will be a day where our emotions will always be pure and right and pleasing before the sight of God. And that's a key spark in the lifetime worship of God. Last time we, we talked about how Moses wasn't doing anything special when the presence of God came to him. He possibly was sleeping. He definitely wasn't on a college campus in Kentucky. So he was, he was just, in one sense, going about life. And yet God comes for him. And this is where God will greet him. And it's interesting how this greeting first happens. God comes and he says twice, Moses, Moses, in exclamation. He, he meets Moses, he responds. God sees that Moses is now looking at him and he cries out his name twice. But, and you have to take my word for it a moment. Moses has no idea at this point who's talking to him. There are enough textual clues throughout this passage that Moses has no idea who's talking about him. And what I want to bring up in this point is the following. Don't rush downstairs and get the heretic stand for me, but, but just listen to me for a little bit, and then hopefully it'll make sense. We don't appreciate this fact, but the Hebrew faith at this point in time, is a very primitive religion. It's a very primitive religion. What do I mean by that? First off, it is a faith of, of it's a verbal faith. It's a faith of stories of promise that have not yet been written down. Even Jesus, when he rises from the dead on the road to Emmaus, makes clear Moses is the first author of Scripture. It would have been on the world stage a primitive faith. The people in the land of Goshen that God had set them aside in, they would have had stories of promise they passed down, and they have that ark-like structure, that sarcophagus of Joseph, that once prince of Egypt that came with a promise that one day they'd be delivered into a new land. That's really what they had. Now let's talk about Egypt. Egypt is a nation, and there's two songs that tell us this, but also Chronicles mentions this, that was founded by the descendants of Ham. In one sense, if you're familiar with the, the land of Nod that Cain made before the flood, Cain, after being cast out of the covenant line, he makes this marvelous city in all outward sense, where all sorts of things are invented. And then debauchery and other things are invented there too. But after the flood, there is a sense in which Egypt is a, a new land of Nod. This time, the descendants of Ham, who had been kind of cursed out of the covenant family, his descendants go and found this place. And it's a remarkable place. 
It's a place so remarkable. We'll often credit the Greeks for founding philosophy, but if you read the ancient Greeks, they say they took a lot of their philosophy from Egypt. It's a place so remarkable that we get really excited about our almost 300-year Gamayan house. <laughs> the pyramids in Giza, which you guys have seen, they were 500 years old when Abraham looked upon them. They're 1,000 years old when Moses looks upon them. And they have this robust faith carved and chiseled in stone, written down about the afterlife and gods and the mythology and Horus and all of this stuff and more of that will be, we'll see, will be dealt with in the plagues themselves. And here you have Moses, who for the first 40 years of his life was raised in the wisdom of the Egyptians and teaching of the Egyptians, and then for two days tried to be a Hebrew and then ran away. If you don't appreciate how unlikely of an individual Moses is at the age of 80, he's awaiting the end of his life, God has another 40 years planned for him. That this is an uncatechized, primitive kind of individual in which God's going to use in order to write down and scripturate his word, write down his word, and pass down his word to his people. You're missing a big part of the story. And he's going to come up against the epicenter of worldly philosophy and worldly acclaim. The, the, the Pyramid of Giza, it was not until a chapel, the old St. Paul Chapel, I believe, in London, in 1,221 AD, that there was another building that had any aspect that was taller than the Pyramids of Giza. I think it was until the Eiffel Tower, it was the first time there was something that you could stand comfortably higher than the pyramids of Easter. And God is meeting in the wilderness this fairly uncatechized. He doesn't even know the name of God yet. He makes that clear in verse 13. Individual. He's going to do a remarkable work of salvation. And this is our takeaway of the church. We constantly are looking at a society where we don't like the kinds of individuals it's producing. And yet, we need to understand that's us. And that's also the mission field. And those are the kinds of people that God pursues. He pursues these people. He pursues these individuals. And so it's connected even to the gospel itself. And so here is Moses, and he doesn't even know the name of God. And yet, as he did write down this verse later on, in verse 4, Notice in verse 4, there are two names for God used here. The first is Lord, or Yahweh, as we often will call it. And the second is God, Elohim. There is a singularity to this Lord, and yet there is this plurality to our God. We often think of the Trinity as some New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament doctrine. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. And we see it here. And who is this angel of the Lord in the burning bush? Calvin and, and so many others make clear. We should understand that this is the second person of the Trinity. The ancient church taught this without any shame. 
This is the first advent of Christ before he took on human flesh. The Lord's appearing to one God in plurality of persons. And we can see the hints of it starting in verse 4, even though Moses does not yet know his name in the text. And so this is where we stand. And yet notice that Moses at this point has no kind of reaction towards God. God has said his name twice, and God even is, is talking to him and conversing with him. And so far, notice Joseph has had, I mean Moses has had no response. And Moses wasn't doing anything in order for him to be just picked out and set apart, but that's how God works. God will save a great multitude of those who all seem to be, us included, awful candidates for salvation at first. And then God, after calling Moses, immediately commands Moses, as the ESV puts it, to do, do not come near. A better translation is come no closer. Come no closer. There is no... Come no closer. By the way, this is only the second time in the Bible up until this point, God has said the word holy. The first time God says the word holy is in Genesis chapter 2, I believe it's verse 3, when he's talking about the Sabbath rest. That he has, in that final day of creation, he creates a day holy unto the Lord. And in that period of time, there is this unique abiding holiness of the presence of God. If we could go to the garden, the original garden, the garden of Eden, if we were to be transported there before the fall, I think it would be a no surprise. I think we would be immediately captivated with the the holiness, the presence of God in this remarkable garden. Here now is the second time God has called something holy. And what is he looking at? He's looking at a barren wasteland. He's, as we talked about last week, in a burning brambling bush. It's dusty. It's probably hot. It's dry. It's, it's got none of the arid goodness in nature that a flourishing garden would have. And yet God is there. And so it's holy. God's presence makes it holy. You know, when we start the service with an invocation, an invocation is not really a prayer. When we begin with the invocation, we're beginning with the acknowledgement of God's presence being here. We've, we've called We've read the word of the Lord, we've, we've sung to him, and we're acknowledging that God, you are present here. And where you are present, we are, call, we are called to be a holy people. That's why when it comes to the matter of worship, when it comes to what we do in worship, we actually have to be mindful that the things that we're deciding and picking, especially from that kind of call worship to benediction moment, are holy and pleasing unto the Lord. Because you're not the audience, and I'm not the entertainment. Let me repeat that. You're not the audience, I'm not the entertainment. God's presence is here, and we are called to be holy in His presence, and we are called to be sanctified and shaped by His Word. 
It's God who decides what is holy, what is right, what is pleasing before his face. And so what God does here is he tells Moses first to take off his shoes. Again, Moses still said, stop, take off your shoes, it's holy ground. And while I wish, and if anybody has, I know like Adam finally saw my bare feet this week. Because if you come here midweek, I am cruising around this place barefoot. I got my uglies showing on my toesies. And I'm walking around this place and I love to, you know, joke that it's, it's, it's sacred ground, right? No, no. It's not about the feet. I wish it was, because then I could say, you know, I could preach up here barefoot. It's not about the feet. Why does Moses have to take off shoes? I love how R.C. Sproul puts this. R.C. Sproul pointed out in this passage. It's a reminder to Moses. Moses, you're a grounded individual. You were made out of dust. You take off your shoes and remember the dusty reality of your presence. You know, we read in that, that early verse of, of Genesis, God separated the waters from the water. In one sense, our creation is God playing with mud. We're separated dust. There's, you know, you can go to the Vatican today. The Vatican will claim that the Apostle Peter is, was his sarcophagus is below pretty much where the Pope would, he doesn't really preach, where he'd tell nice pithyisms are from. If it was Peter, he's dust. If it was Philip, I mean, Philip is now dust. Apostle John is now dust. Paul is now dust. Thomas is now dust. And, and maybe right about now you think I'm totally off track with this. But actually, verse 6 will show you I'm right on track with this. God, in having Moses before his presence, reminds Moses, you are of dust. And in my presence, I am holy. Moses still has not responded in fear. Then we have this verse. This amazing, amazing verse. God says in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And what does Moses do upon hearing this? Moses, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God is changing the primitive religion in one sense, the primitive, the passing down of stories and whispers, and he is adventing himself before Moses. And so what changed Moses' posture and reverence and awe so quickly? The burning bush had it. The burning bush speaking and knowing the name of Moses had it. The God who told Moses to stop coming towards him had it. The ground being declared as holy. Take off your shoes. Had it. What changed? God just declared something that caused Moses to hide his face, face in awesome 
fearful reverence of God. God did not tell Moses, Moses, I am the God who is the God of your forefathers, but I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And if you don't know yet what is being said here, you could actually turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 26, and see Jesus use this particular verse against the Sadducees when they claimed they had no knowledge of the fact that there is life after death. Jesus points to this verse here as evidence and proof that there is life after death. That when the body goes down into dust, the God who knows your name, life continues on for you. And it's that that Moses realized. And it's at that point, Moses, in embracing the finitude, the the reality that he is a dust-born sinner. And yet here he is in the presence of a holy God who has come to redeem, who come to save, who can give give and pour out life for dust and give it eternally. It's at that point he covers his face in reverence and awe. He responds in holiness. There will be soon a chapter where They will come to this same mountain. Moses will bring a great group of people. And a great group of people will go down. They'll be having the worship service of all worship services. The biggest party, the best festival celebration. Colleges, college campuses in Kentucky can't compete with it. Of a golden calf. And God, through Moses... Strike at a great many, struck down dead, because there was no reverence or awe or fear of God in their eyes. You want to know about this supposed revival in Kentucky? Reality is, I, I hope for some, they've come to an amazing encounter with God. You won't know it yet. Because the, the encounter with God, when you realize the finite nature of your reality, The fact that in 200 years, all of us, if this world is still carrying on, will be dust. The finite nature of it all. And then yet, God offers life to you everlasting. That for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, they did not die, but they actually are still, they're even more alive, Moses, than they were. These faint stories that you heard, in your two days of being a Hebrew and your catechizing as a young child, that they're more alive than they've ever been, if that does not change you, if that does not change your conduct, change how you desire to worship God, how you desire to be in the presence of God, how you desire to repent before God and, and plead with Him to grow you in further holiness, then you have not had an encounter with living God that is a profitable one or a good one. Just story of judgment. That's the life of the Spirit-saved Christian. When God draws us to Him through His life-giving power of the Spirit, 
He calls us personally by name, and it is to change us. It's not so we can have an ad campaign where we pretend it could just go on in childish ways, as Rob pointed out downstairs. Moses has discovered through this coming advent of the Lord that the Lord and Savior, and the Savior personally knows him by name. And that's a beautiful reality. And that's a reality that can hopefully bring us here week after week as we go out into life's wilderness and we struggle with all the things of life that we can come back here and that we can be renewed once again. That we can repent once again. We can even hear after the sermon. We're going to hear the fact that we have an assurance of pardon. That we can be in the presence of God and worship His holy name. These things start to matter more and more the more we're transformed by the fact that the reason that we're just not dust outside is that an infinite God decided to infinitely give an infinite sacrifice of Himself for us and for our sake, so that we can be with him through all eternity. And that is good, and that is glorious news, and, and that is life-changing news. And no longer does the question become, you know, what sins can I get away with? What's the minimum of walking in the door and then going to eat a carne asada burrito or whatever I can get by with? But it then comes, you come face to face with the reality of, this God is beautiful, this God is good, and I desire to be in his holy presence. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, here we behold a passage where Moses grew up in the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom seemed powerful. It was marvelous. It was celebrated all throughout the known world. Eventually the Romans and the Greeks, everybody looked upon this nation of Egypt. And they said, ah, here is prosperity, here is what is good. You didn't display yourself, you didn't come in your first advent there. You went to a dusty wilderness. And you met a certain shepherd who had long ago lost some of that vitality, some of that strength that he had in his youthful energies. And yet, through your power, you were able to change him. So I pray for us here. We often come here and we're sapped of energy. Our world is not one that's conducive to building us up. Even if we want, when we want to be informed about the world, it is so discouraging, gross wickedness that's being encouraged and promoted. And yet in your presence, you're able to do something remarkable. You're able to wash away the sins that plague us, but also that you're able to build us up and to make us more holy and pleasing in your sight. So we ask that you, your work is seen in us both today, throughout the week, and all the weeks. Until that day we go before your face, where Abraham 
where Isaac, where Jacob, and where Moses now 